Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Disky Discussions. I'm your host, A.B. Basson. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. He was part of a select number of people inside Cairo Stadium for last month's CAF Champions League final. No, he's not part of the Al-Akhli coaching staff. Cabello Bosilong is a football consultant and club licensing instructor, while he also works for the Confederation of African Football as a general coordinator and was in charge of this year's final. He also owns his own business, Sports Sense. Cabello, thanks for joining me on Disky Discussions. You, you enjoyed a unique childhood. Your mom was a diplomat, so you spent time in The Hague and in Rome as a child. Um, how did that shape you into the man you are today? And can you speak Dutch and Italian? <laughs> um, first of all, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to have a chat with you. Um, yeah, I think from my childhood, I've just been moving around a lot. Um, even before uh, we moved overseas with my mom. I mean, I was born in Potchefstroom, then grew up in Mafikeng then moved to Pretoria. And from Pretoria, that's when then my mom uh, got posted overseas. So uh, living living in Holland and in Italy, uh, part of my high school years, basically, definitely shaped uh, the kind of person that I am. Um, uh, taught me how to have a global outlook on, on things. Um, you know, I think obviously because... Uh, with South Africa, with the history of South Africa, uh, we didn't get many opportunities to travel and see the world. So uh, I think I was very fortunate to to have that opportunity, you know, around 97, um, to have that opportunity to move around with my mother and her work and experience all those uh, different cultures, uh, different, um, different, you know, languages, different food, different... Um, uh, you know, just it, it, it was just a whole different experience from uh, your South African experience, let me put it that way. Um, and it definitely taught me a lot. I mean, in different places, you learn a lot about the people there, you know, in terms of um, the Dutch people, you know, the Dutch people are very organized, very much on time, very much uh, they stick to what they know and what they do. Um, whereas the Italians are a bit opposite, you know, they hmm. never on time. Um, they, they kind of disorganized, but they're very passionate. Um, Italians are very passionate in the things that they love, you know, whether it be football, food, clothes, women, cars, they're very passionate and they know how to show it, you know? So, so all these different places that, you, you know, I grew up in and I've lived, you 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 pick up on the things on the good things mostly the bad things some of the bad things, um, but it definitely does shape um, the person you do become and I think that that has obviously told in terms of the current work that I do uh, that um, always one always looks at a global outlook on life and whatever I do and not just. Uh, look at uh, where you are currently, you know, and um, yeah. with regards to the languages, I mean, Dutch was very much similar to Afrikaans. So, uh, but they spoke a lot of English in Holland, so you could get by with English. Um, so we didn't get to master it much, whereas in Italy it was the opposite. And um, you kind of had to learn Italian um, because people didn't speak much. TV was in Italian, everything was in Italian. So you had to learn Italian and, uh, I learned a good amount of it, obviously not speaking it in a while. 
um, you get to kind of lose it. But I think once I have a few uh, drink or two and I'm with an Italian person, it comes back. It, it comes back out. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I actually, my stepmom is from, her parents are from Italy. So yeah, next time I chat to her, I'll, I think I'll get you on the phone and, and, and you guys can have a conversation. Yeah, um, please warn me and then I'll have a few drinks beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Well, you, you, you're truly, you know, a global ambassador in that sense. And you went to Lynn University in Florida on a dual soccer and academic scholarship, I understand. Initially, mm. was it your intention to play soccer professionally? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been into sports. Um, I've always played sports growing up in high school uh, and primary school. Uh, football obviously was my number one sport, but I was actually fairly good at athletics as well, especially with the 800 meters and triple jump. And when I was in Holland, actually, um, one of the parents uh, saw me doing triple jump and he actually wanted to coach me individually. And I think he had a plan of, targeting, you know, the 2004 Olympics in in Athens. I think that's where his plans for me were towards triple jump. So mm. I was almost at that crossroads where I had to choose between football and, um, and athletics. Uh, but then uh, my mom got transferred to Rome. So it kind of, it kind of made that decision for me because in Rome, there wasn't much of, you know, I didn't have that personal coach. And then um, I just focused fully on football, you know. So so then I started playing football and, you know, did well for high school. Then started, uh, because I was going to an American school in Rome, um, then the opportunities of, of studying and playing soccer in America were very enticing as much as I would have... I mean, the goal is always in my head is I wanted to become a professional footballer like all young kids. And I remember at that time, Phil Masinga was still in Italy. He was playing for Bari. Mm. And he used to actually come down to our house in Rome for Easter. Um, so on Easter holidays, he used to come down and stay with us. Um, and he said, no, he could organize trials for me, you know, uh, at Bari. Um, but then I think after I got the scholarship, my mom was like, no. Um, leave this other stuff go at least you're getting an education and playing football and go and go ahead and do that and so when I went to America I mean I was there to get a degree but I initially was there I wanted to become a footballer that's all I wanted to to do so even with what I studied uh, I studied political you know science international relations you know yeah. and I only studied it because that was my mom's background that's what I knew a lot of outside of football, you know? So I said, let me just do this so I could get a degree, make my mom happy, but I want to become a footballer, you know? So I think as the years went by, um, you start to have real conversations with yourself and then, you know, you're like, actually, am I good enough? You know, because whenever you're in a smaller community, you're always kind of the best but when you get into a bigger community it's like okay I'm not as good as I thought I was hmm. I can still play but maybe this professional thing is not um is not gonna be my way out you know there's not gonna you start having those difficult conversations with 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 yourself and I think that's when um I realized that okay no I need to start thinking outside of 
you know, the actual dream of playing football because it's difficult. I mean, it's not like uh, anyone, any budding footballer will tell you it's very difficult to become a professional football player. Um, no matter how much talent you have, it's hard work, it's op- luck or, you know, opportunities or being in the right place, right time. It's a whole lot of things that have to come together. Um, and I think that's when I realized that, okay, no, I need to start. Uh, I can't hold on to this dream a lot longer than I can. I need to come up with another plan. And um, funny enough, I was watching a, a Champions League game and it was a uh, Barcelona against AC Milan and um, uh, Ronaldinho um, scored this amazing goal for Barcelona Mm. um, where he kind of took it on his from his right to his left and then he shot it past Dida and I don't support any of those teams but I jumped out of my chair and the joy that I had for that goal and I think that's when I started thinking is like okay if I can't get paid to play football I'm going to get paid to watch football I don't know how but that's what I want to do. I want to get paid to watch football, whatever it is that I can do and use my strength, whatever. But I just want to be in a position where I'm at a football game and I'm being paid for it. And, you know, so that was then the goal. That was like, okay, I need to figure out what I want to do with my life uh, post the stream. And I think the first thing that I did was at the university, uh, they had a university team, but uh, there were a lot of international students at the university who who came there, yes, they weren't good enough to play on the university team, but they wanted to play football in a structured environment. So I, I actually formed a, a club, university club team uh, and registered them in the local league, local like social leagues. And we got a lot of students coming through. We held trials, we got kids. So that was my first taste of kind of football administration in a way was when uh, I formed this university club and we got to playing in the in the South Florida League, um, social league. So um, I think that's where it kind of it bit me, and I was like, okay, uh, this is what I like to do, you know. Um, but I realized that the degree that I was currently doing had no way anything that could get me in a position to get uh, a job or something within the the football world or sports. So I I, I realized, okay, I need to study and do something within sports because right now it's too late for me to change my degree. Uh, so I need to do something within sports. And that's when I came across uh, the FIFA masters program. Yeah. Um, so then that's there. That's when I said, okay, let me do the FIFA masters program. And that could be my entry into the sports world. And it proved to be your entry into the sports world. Um, you worked for the PSL you know, soon after, soon after graduating. Um, how did, for those who don't know, who did you get into? How did you get into the PSL? Um, and how was it working there for the four years um, after that? Well, when I went to the FIFA Master, I, I think before then, I, I had to come up with a plan. Okay, I need to know what I want to do so I could get the most out of it. Um, I think when I realized, okay, I want to become a part of the football industry, but what do I want to do? And I think from the onset, I said, you know, I think I was 25 at the time. And I said, for me, in 10 years time, that's my goal. 10 years, I want to start a football club from scratch, uh, from the ground up and run it in the right way, you know? So I'm giving myself 10 years. So when I went to the FIFA master, that was the goal. That was the that was the ultimate goal. So I needed to work in a way 
towards that goal. And I think um, writing my thesis, I wrote my thesis on how the PSL can leverage from the 2010 World Cup coming to South Africa. And I think that for me was in a way positioning myself to to get a job at the PSL because I thought that's the first place I need to work is at the PSL because that's where I understand the whole operations, well, the majority of operations of football is at the league uh, with regards to, you know, getting that experience and understanding how a league operates. Um, so I wrote my thesis on on the on the the PSL and and how it could leverage from the 2010 World Cup. Now, in that process, I was obviously doing a lot of interviews with various different people, and I'd called the PSL and tried to get an interview with the CEO back then, who was Trevor Phillips. Hmm. Uh, but the PA kept, you know, ducking and diving, ducking and diving because I was just a student, uh, and you know. So I knew that there was an incoming CEO who was coming in from Norway. So I Googled his name and then um, I found his email address. So I sent him an email and said, you know, can I please ask you a few questions because you're the incoming CEO. I'm a student. I'm doing one, two, three. And he's sure he answered the questions. And then after I finished my thesis, I sent all the people who contributed to it. I sent them my th- my, my thesis um, and then a week after I graduated, I get a call from him and he says, are you back in SA? And I said, no, I'm, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. He said, no, let's meet because uh, I want to chat to you about some stuff. And um, when I got back, we had a chat and we, you know, got on like fire. And and basically I was the first person he was hiring um, as he hadn't even started at the league yet um, mm-hmm. because of work permit issues. But then. He already took me to an interview with the chairman and that went well. And then, yeah, then I started with him and um, basically I was working from his office, um, you know, basically as, uh, and I asked him what, the first day I got there, I asked him what, so what is my role? He basically gave me back my thesis and he highlighted all the recommendations in the thesis and he said, start working on these. And I was kind of shocked because I was like, no, I wasn't doing this for, you know, I was just doing it for a grade to get good <laughs> marks. And he's like, no, like, um, you know, and one of the key things that was in there was club licensing, you know, because I said that a strong club licensing structure is needed. And I mean, at that time, UEFA just started the club licensing system. Um, so obviously I was privy to it being in Europe and it wasn't really much heard of in the country. So... So he understood it because he was from Europe. And then that's when we started working on the club licensing system. And that, in essence, became the compliance manual that they use in the PSL today. You worked for the PSL for four years and you start, then you started your own company in December 2012. Um, mm. More about SportSense and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Um, so I think when I, when I left the PSL, um, I left the PSL in 2011 and basically within that, I left the PSL and I went to Megapro, uh, Megapro Marketing, where basically I went there to head um, the SAFA account. Megapro had all the commercial rights to to the SAFA, to SAFA and Bafana Bafana, all, all the commercial rights around SAFA. So um, I went there for that 
experience because obviously from the PSL, I wasn't doing much in terms of commercial. It was more competitions, administration, club licensing. That That's what I was doing a lot of. And so I wanted to, you know, also expand my repertoire of knowledge. So I went there to to learn more about the commercial side, where the money comes from. Yeah. Um, so I was at Megapro for... I say just a little bit over a year, but in that time, you know, I was kind of, it, it was frustrating. Um, number one, because obviously this is after the world cup, the bubble had got burst. Uh, sponsors were not kind of jumping on as they were before. And it was very difficult to, to keep sponsors at SAFA, um, you know, rightfully so, because obviously uh, the big events, um, you know, was attracting a lot of interest and a lot of, you know, money from corporates. And then when the big event is gone, um, you're now trying to sell a product uh, that has no big event, you know? So it was very difficult to entice sponsors to kind of, to kind of stay on um, or come on board. Um, so it was a bit frustrating in that, but I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a bit, I, I learned, a lot uh, with regard to the commercial aspects of the game. But in that, during that year as well, I wanted to, you know, I was getting itchy and I was like, you know what, I want to work on projects that I want to work on and fulfill me, you know, um, and not kind of, you know, do things. So that's when um, Sports Sense was formed and I kind of just took the decision, let me just leave where I currently am. I have no clients, I have no nothing. Um, let me just take the plunge and, and, and try and see where this takes me. And, um, I think the, the first kind of gig that I got, um, was the net bank on a team search, which was, uh, you know, I think the company started December by March that year. We, we were working on the net bank on a team search, you know? Uh, because it was a, it, it had just started, you know, it was just an idea that had come up. So we had to come up with conceptualize actually how this is going to work. Uh, the the big idea was there, you know, bring a team of amateurs to play against the winners of the uh, NetBank Cup. But you know, all the other elements were not there, you know. So we needed to now work on those things and 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 make sure that. Um, we, we run a proper thing because it was the first one. So um, I think the NetBank Unit team search kind of got, got, got us going. And since then, we've done a lot of different projects as well. Um, we worked on the Copa Coca-Cola. We worked on, we worked on the, um, we've done a, f- a lot of, quite a few gigs with the Houting Provincial Government, uh, where we do football tournaments, uh, for PSL sides, for women's football, um, you know, we've worked internationally as well in Botswana, in um, in Namibia, uh, you know. So we worked on a lot of football projects, the Shell Helix Ultra Cup. So um, on a day to day, nothing's ever the same uh, with regards to what we do because um, you know different different things come up, different projects come up. Uh, we we're a company that obviously. Uh, are very much vested in the football space and with people that love football. Um, and we're always trying to come up with different football uh, properties or different uh, 
different ways of how corporates and can engage within the football world. Um, so we try to come up with unique concepts, unique events, um, unique things in, in, in ways that um, the, the, the football loving people can, can experience and, and consume, consume the products. You make mention of, of club licensing and you work for a, for, for CAF as a club licensing instructor. Um, for, for those who, for those, for those of us who don't know about club licensing, um, what exactly does it entail? And I take it that you, you do quite a lot of traveling on the African continent in a consulting manner as well. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, club licensing is, 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 is a very kind of complex system to, to explain, but, um, essentially club licensing is basically a tool that uh, leagues, clubs can use to further improve and professionalize the game within their own context. Um, it was started in, it was actually started in Germany. Um, and I think it was born after the fact that the Germans, I think, crashed out of Euro 2000 uh, out of the group stages, which is unheard of in Germany, you know. So mm. I think after that, there was almost like a, a public inquest in terms of why did the German team do so bad? They didn't even get out of the group stages. And one of the things that came out of that is uh, they then said, you know, clubs needed to now start developing players at a certain level. Um, so it started with players and player development. And then it built on from that into other aspects of the industry. And I think once UEFA started seeing that, they took it on board and made it a club licensing in what we know as club licensing today. So club licensing is basically five areas within the football realm, which is namely uh, the sporting criteria, which is your football development, uh, your, you know, your football philosophy, all those things of uh, youth system, your infrastructure, your administration, finance and legal. So those five are the five key pillars of club licensing. And within those five pillars, there's certain criteria that clubs have to meet. So there's a criteria which a club has to have. So uh, an example would be a club must have a head coach and the head coach must have a pro license. You know, that's a criteria. You can't get a license uh, to play in any legal competition if your club, if your coach does not have uh, a pro license, for an example. So you set the criteria as a league or in confederation. You set the criteria as to the standards that you want. Um, and your A criteria is a must-have. B criteria is basically uh, criteria that are going to be A criteria in a few years. So it's giving you time to, to get ready. And then C criteria is, is best practice, nice to have, you know, but you won't be penalized if you don't have it, you know. Yeah. So it, it's a system basically that, that, that intends on professionalizing the game and making sure that everyone's on kind of an equal footing um, so that some clubs are not left behind, you know, because some others have money and some others are already doing these things, that the ones who are not doing these things. So it's pushing those to, to, to kind of get on even scale, you know, in terms of that. Obviously, there'll be bigger clubs than smaller clubs, but at least with the key things, uh, those must be made minimum that all the clubs must have, you know. So it's just a, a tool that 
that that we can use in football to start standardizing. And obviously, it's a very hot topic now in South Africa because of uh, CAF now uh, implementing. So it's not even a thing of where uh, I think a lot of the federations knew about it and they were in the regulations. But I think now CAF is now starting to implement, you know, I think the grace period has gone. So now you're seeing a lot of clubs and coaches being left on the sidelines because they don't have the adequate qualifications, you know, those kind of things. So I think it's part of the process. Um, you're always going to to get, you know, instances where uh, people don't meet the criteria. But um, I think people shouldn't see it as a punishing stick, you know, kind of a thing. It's a thing to help and improve. And we work together to ensure that, um, you know, clubs have the support necessary to fulfill their obligations as well. So the onus is also on the national associations and CAF as a confederation to assist, um, to assist everyone and especially the clubs to ensure that they have the opportunities to make sure that they meet all the obligations. Do you think what, what happened with, with Kaiser Chiefs and Bloemfontein Celtic, obviously I think that's what you, you're learning to, um, do you think what happened with them in the past week or two, is it a bit of a wake-up call for South African football in sense of, you know, trying, as, as a South African league, I think, you know, we, we value ourselves pretty highly. Do you think we should be mm. setting the standard in the end of the day? No, definitely. I mean, I, I, I travel around the continent quite a bit. And every time I mention I'm from South Africa, everybody looks up to the South African to South African football in general, you know. Uh, everybody looks up to South African football. Everybody knows about South African football. And sometimes even more than we know about South African football as, as a country, you know. Um, I mean, in Egypt, I was in Egypt last week. And, you know, people were asking me, what's going on with Kaiser Chiefs? And I was shocked. I'm like, huh? How do you know? You know, you wouldn't get a random person uh, in South Africa asking what's going on with, you know, pyramids or Ismailia from Egypt or, you know. Um, so people are very actively aware of what's going on in South Africa and they're following. So I think we, uh, fortunately or not, unfortunately, we are kind of the, you know, the trendsetters, the standard bearers, and we've got to take that responsibility on our shoulders and ensure that whatever we do, uh, we do in the correct manner because a lot of leagues are following us. I mean, a lot of the times I always get questions about, um, the situation in South Africa in terms of the league and the federation, how they're independent from each other. Because in most countries, uh, the league operates from under the, the, the federation, the national association. So in South Africa, it's a different model. And they're always asking me about that model. And if it's conducive, if, because they see it as being successful in inverted commas in, in our context, um, they're always asking questions because they want to see if they can do it. But obviously, there's a lot of factors involved and you can't just necessarily say, yes, this is the model, the best model, and we can just blanket use it across the whole continent. No, there's different dynamics in each of the countries. So, but in essence, everyone is always looking as to what South Africa is doing, uh, whether we like it or not. You make mention of the, the PSL and SAFA being separate entities, and it's been a hot topic in, in Kenya of late. Um, I had a discussion with a journalist there a few months ago. Um, do you see, for those who are, who are interested in you know them being separate entities, I think the Premier League and, and FA Football Association in England, they have got a, a similar model. Um, 
for those countries or for the federations who want to implement something like the PSL and SAFA do, uh, what are the positives and negatives? Uh, that's a very, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of the countries um, are looking to, you know, South Africa, just as we look to the English Premier League um, and we kind of model the PSL around the English Premier League. A lot of countries are looking to us and trying to model their leagues uh, in, in our, you know, kind of way. Um, look, I think um, obviously every situation is different within each country and each context because you could look at leagues that are successful being run in the other model where the federation and the league work hand in hand, you know, uh, and they're not separate entities. But at the end of the day, the fundamentals is that for there to be success in the country, both entities, whether it's the people that are running the league and the people that are running the federation have to work hand in hand. Um, there's no and ifs or buts around it. If you want to be successful, because at the end of the day, uh, players that play in the national team come from the leagues and obviously um, the national team needs those players and obviously the players want to play for their national team to play in, you know, these prestigious competitions like, you know, your Africa Cup of Nations and your World Cups. So, so we need, there needs to be a model or a way where, uh, you know, the, both parties are working hand in hand and you can see the English Premier League how and the, and the and the football association how how they work hand in hand to 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 ensure that um uh you know their objectives are met so obviously the league has their own objectives the fa has their own objectives but there's also common objectives that need to be met and i think that's where uh there needs to be an understanding you know and yeah. and discussions can take place in terms of um Okay, you know, from a league point of view, uh, when to release players uh, on non, you know, non-FIFA breaks, you know, all these kind of things. There's a lot of different factors uh, involved, but I think um, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of model. Um, that's why I, I always tell people that are thinking of doing this model to very much look into their own realities and understand what's happening in their own realities to ensure that uh, whatever route that they take, it's for the best interest of the country and football in that country. Uh, because you might, you might want to end up splitting uh, because you see that the PSL and SAFA are doing it in that way. But at the end of the day, maybe your country is not commercially um, you know, viable and stable enough, like maybe a South Africa, to where the league can go out and get its own sponsors. And maybe they do need the association to go out and get those sponsors for them. So so a lot of different factors are involved. Um, so, so I would always advise that, you know, think hard, do your proper due diligence, do your research uh, before coming up with decisions like that. You also work as a general coordinator for, for CAF and you were in charge of the Champions League final last month. How was that experience and, and, and linking up with, with Pizza Mosimani there who obviously um, led Al-Akhli to the title? Yeah, no, I've, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of um, 
matches as a general coordinator, I think since 2015. And I think this was definitely the biggest match I've ever done in terms of uh, magnitude and exposure and everything. I mean, I've worked in um, Africa Cup of Nations, but I think this match was definitely uh, the cherry on the top. Um, you know, when I, when I got the call from Kev to say that I'm doing the match, I was, you know, I was jumping up, screaming like a little girl because, you know, these are the kind of, these are the kind of matches that you want to be a part of, you know, when you, when you're in this kind of environment, you want to do the big games, you want to do the big pressure games that everyone is watching and, you know, all the eyes of the world are on, on that match, you know? So, so when they called me, it was number one, it was an honor and a privilege uh, but number two, I had to get, you know, my visa sorted out quickly. I had to do COVID test and I, I flew out to Egypt and um, luckily, I mean, obviously Egypt has, you know, just hosted the Africa Cup of Nations last year. So systems are, systems are, are advanced to where it was, uh, it was a lot easier from an operational point of view because we just had an AFCON there last year. Uh, but obviously, this is the first time that uh, their two big teams are in the CAF Champions League final, in any final of continental, you know, stature. So it was a big deal. And it was just very unfortunate that uh, there were no fans allowed because I think the, 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 the scale and the ambience and atmosphere and everything would have just been... Uh, on another level. So I think it was yeah. just unfortunate that obviously because of the situation, uh, we couldn't have fans. But um, I think um, definitely the event went well. Um, uh, it was it was great to, to, to meet up with uh, the South African contingent that was there. It was almost like home away from home. Um, I think when I, when I, when I was with... Um, with a team the night before the match at the uh, official training session at the stadium, you know, we had a chat and, you know, they were telling me how much they, they're loving life in Cairo and, you know, just, um, you know, they, you can't breathe because everybody's either a Ali or Zamalek fan. And so the pressure's always on, you know, because uh, the country is football mad. And when I say football mad, it's, it's on another level. And I'm, I, I, I think people always begrudge me when I say this. And, um, you know, I, I, I always say that, you know, I, I don't think that South Africa, we are a footballing country. And I don't mean that in, an, in a very kind of, you know, negative way. I'm just saying that, you know, when you travel and you see the way that fans are passionate about football in other countries, they're just on another level that, we are not there yet, you know. Yeah. Maybe we'll get there. I don't know what needs to happen for us to get there. But when you go to these different countries and you experience matches and fans and just just talking to people on the streets and, you know, just you, you understand that, you know, maybe because football is the only sport that they have, maybe we have the luxury of having multiple sports that we can, you know, consume, you know. Um, you know, if this team doesn't do well, we can move to this one. We can, but other countries, football is all they have, and they are madly passionate about the game. And and I, I, for me, my dream is for for us as a country to get to get to that level. You know, where we are so passionate about, uh, where we we get to a point where people are not saying why the 
why are the stadiums empty? You know, why is stadium? Why are people not coming to the games? Um, I, 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 my wish and my hope is that we get to a point where, you know, stadiums are packed because people are just crazy. And I know people in South Africa love their football, and I'm not saying that they don't, um, because you do have people who love their football and. Um, you know, and that go to the stadiums and that support the game, whether we do well, whether we don't do well, whether the teams are doing well, and they are those people. But I'm just saying as as a country in general, you know, as a as a collective, um, I just think we need to 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 get to up our game a bit and get to that level. You know, I don't know what the answers are for that, um, because it could be many various factors, but my hope and my wishes for us to get to that level. But um, the guys that side are definitely enjoying life in Cairo. Uh, you know, coach, you know, you were just telling me the whole time is like, you know, and, 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 and it almost felt like what I was going through. You know, you, you, you work so hard to get to those big occasions, you know. Yeah. Uh, and when he was telling me these things, I was feeling like this is exactly me as well. You know, you work so hard, you do so many things, you, you work all these other matches to get to make sure that when you get to that big stage you are prepared you know you feel comfortable and you know as much as this was the Champions League final not once did I ever feel pressure or I'm over my head with this because you'd work so hard to get to that moment that you know what everything was just like clockwork. You treated it like it's another game. Yes, of course, it's a Champions League final. There's a few little butterflies, but you treat it like it's a normal game. And that 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 constant repetition of what you do at other games, you pull it through. And that was kind of a, a parallel to what coach, you know, was going through as well, you know, from preparing himself and his team to get to that final stage. And obviously, you know, they were more prepared than the other team and they won and they won the match. So so it was a very proud moment to be there as as a South African, you know, number one, to be there to 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 witness that moment. Uh, because I know not many people, not many South Africans were there to witness and to be on the pitch, you know, to be talking to them and seeing and and you know, seeing them lift the trophy and dancing around and you know, it was it was a great moment that, you know. Um, only a few South Africans can share, and I'm blessed to be one of them. Yeah, sounds sounds great. Sounds awesome. Um, I, I'm glad you made mention of you know South Africa not in your eyes not really being a footballing nation nation and isn't because I always tend to feel like that as well, especially when you know you go to the stadium and there's hardly any fans there, and then you you, you know look at other countries and. You know, it could just be an ordinary, ordinary game in the midweek and it, it'll be a packed stadium. Um, you know, I'm not going to ask you how we improve on that because I think, you know, that's a question we all want an answer to. Um, but maybe, maybe we, if, we, if we identify a few topics, maybe we can find a solution. Um, do you feel like, you know, in South Africa, especially during the COVID time now, there's been a lot of... Um, club status sales in you know the top division and actually in the second division, both in the DSV mm-hmm. and Glad, Glad Africa Championship. Do you think that is hindering our progress, um, especially if you think of the amount of money spent on you know clubs spend on on getting exposure for their clubs and, and on fans and and building a community only for it to evaporate you know, in the matter of a week or two? Um, do you think that is 
one way of, you know, making, you know, make one step towards making us a, a footballing nation. Yeah, I think, I, like I said, this is, it's a very complex question that has a lot of different facets to it. So um, I'm not going to say this is the problem, that's the problem, and this is how we can solve it. But in relation to what you're mentioning about club sales, I think, obviously, a lot of people were bemoaning, you know, especially with the sale of it, you know, a 99-year club with so much history, uh, all of a sudden being sold just like that. Um, Yes, the purists, the traditionalists, we wanted to see Vits, you know, stay alive. Um, but the reality, and we always got to understand this, the reality is that this is a business. Number one, this is a business and it's about money. And if you don't have as much as, you know, a club wants to, you know, stay, if it doesn't have the money to operate in the current environment, then and then necessitates the need to sell uh, their status, then, you know, that's that's business. That's business. So we must always look at it from both sides. Uh, As much as, um, yes, from a personal point of view, um, you know, I think that um, maybe it should be a bit more stringent in in the way that clubs get sold. I'm not going to say that I am the expert in terms of how the PSL uh, process works in terms of clubs being sold. But at the end of the day, um, I I believe that I, I think that's possibly why. I mean, I'm not going to say it is why, but I'm possibly why a lot of people end up supporting Chiefs, Pirates and Sundowns because mm. they they kind of realize maybe these are the, the clubs that are going to be around in the next 10 years, you know, because supporting a football club is an investment and is, is an investment. I mean, I support Arsenal and I'll tell you it's a emotional, it's a, it's everything. It's a, it's a lot of investment, especially these taxing, days, you know, especially these days. So, so, so supporting a football club, um, you know, you know, like they always say, you can, you can change your, you know, your house, your wife, your car, but you can never change your football club, you know? And in this environment, in the environment we're in in South Africa is that I've been a lifelong fan of a certain club and then the next day it gets sold. What am I going to do? What am I going to, you know, um, who am I going to support? You know, it's difficult for me to now just start a new relationship with a new club and, Already that's almost like, I'm just going to leave football. I'm not going to support anymore because, you know, so I think, I think there could be ways in which we, we do things a bit better in terms of that. Um, But at the end of the day, also, you have people who are ambitious and who want to be playing at the high level, who've got the resources. And if someone comes to you and says, you know, your club is worth 10 Rand, I'll pay a hundred Rand, you know, are you going to blame the club owners for selling, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, how many clubs are realistically making profits from running a football club entirely just from the football club, you know? Um, uh, I don't think it's too many, you know, then that's the thing is you've got a lot of passionate chairmen who've got resources who are pumping their own money into, into the clubs and their own resources, you know? So, um, so it is a very tricky topic. Um, 
But at the end of the day, I think we need to find the right solution that works for for us as a country. I, I, I believe maybe it's a case of we need to really look and say, okay, maybe we need to have a closed system, you know? Um, let teams know that they're not going to get relegated for a certain period of time so that they can build on getting supporters, getting sponsorship deals, getting because in the current framework, you're basically in a way living from hand to mouth because you can't plan for the next five years because you don't know if you're going to be in the league for the next five years. You can see how competitive the PSL is. Two matches, you know, is top eight to bottom of the, you know, bottom of six points is basically top eight or bottom of the league, you know? So the league is so highly competitive and everybody wants to be one of those 16 teams that you don't focus too much on next season. You focus on now, you know? So I think that's also the issue is that now you focus too much on now. You're not then doing other things like building your supporter base, building your uh, stadium experience for the support building because your focus is, and understandably so, your focus is on, I need to get three points. I need to get a draw. I need to make sure that I don't get relegated, you know? So it's this constant cycle of where you're like, Phew, I didn't get relegated. Now next season starts, you're in the same mind frame, you know? So maybe we need to say, okay, let's let's have a closed system. And I'm just throwing ideas out there, not saying that obviously these are tried and tested, but um, these are things where we maybe say, okay, let's 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 look at hybrids of models around the world. Maybe let's look at an MLS model. Yeah. Let's look at the German model, you know, of of doing things in terms of ownership, you know. Let's look at different ways of how we can say what's the best reality for us to ensure that we can succeed and we can we can make sure that this is a sustainable industry, a sustainable business, and make sure that uh, clubs are deriving profits because you want to invest in something that you know that you will get something out of it. Now, uh, you know, you've got to give your hats out to the football club owners who constantly are in their season after season, spending their own resources, their own family money into this game. And you know this game is like a bug and it bites you. And, you know, spending their own resources to ensure that, you know, football players have an opportunity to play. Players get salaries, you know, those kind of things. People are employed. So you've got to give your heads to those kind of guys who who who, who have definitely taken the, that that responsibility, knowing that they're not getting much out of it, you know. They're not getting those big sponsorship deals. They're not getting, you know, they they basically making sure that uh, we have clubs, we have players that are playing, we have administrators that can do what they do. So it's a very complex question that that needs, I think, all the stakeholders to sit and say, okay, what's the best way we can arrive at where we want to go? Yeah. The purists in me might not agree, but maybe the MLS model is the way going forward in terms of, you know, how they the franchise model and how they're able to build a fan base within, you know, method of months. Um, no, no, no. I think, I think that's one of the leagues that I follow very closely. And you can see that over the years, valuation of MLS clubs has skyrocketed and, yeah. and grown faster at a faster rate than the other four traditional sports in America, you know, being your basketball, baseball, American football, um, so, so the MLS is definitely doing something right. And I'm not saying that we, we need to take wholesale what they do 
but we need to look at the ways, you know, if you look at an example, the MLS used to play at American football stadiums. Now in American football stadiums, American football stadiums were designed that they're outside of the city center because they wanted people to drive there, pay for parking, concessions, all that kind of stuff, build bigger stadiums. Um, now the MLS were using those stadiums, but they weren't filling them. And they said, no, we've got to change who we want to be. We basically, then they said, we want to replicate what is going on in Europe. We want people to be sitting in a pub downtown and then they can walk to a game. Yeah. Um, so now every single team basically and their ownership have to build. If we give you a license for a franchise, you need to ensure that you talk to that municipality to build a stadium and not a 50, 60,000 seater, 15, 20,000 seater stadium downtown um, because that's their target market is the urban guys who are living in the city center. That's who they want to attract. And they make sure that the people who are coming on board also have, you know, uh, have that kind of vision. Um, so that's where you start seeing that uh, before clubs even get launched, you know, they have support base. They know where they're going to play. They have a stadium. They have, you know, so. I, I just think that there's a lot of things that we can take from from leagues outside, but create our own system. You know, we don't have to take full on everything, but we need to take the good that could work here and create an environment where we give clubs the potential to the platform to succeed um, and, and, and ensure that, wow, you know, these franchises are, are now their values uh, are skyrocketing and, it makes sense for people to now start investing within football, you know? Yeah, well, if you look at Serginio Dest and McKinney and Pulisic playing at the highest level across Europe, uh, America must be doing something right. Cabello, um, before we we say goodbye, um, I was just going to go through a, light, a few lighter questions. Um, obviously, no problem. You've traveled a lot in, in Africa, Europe, um, obviously studied in America. Uh, what is the place, best place um, you've traveled to? Um, if you Ooh. can't choose one, you can choose a few. Um, and then maybe, yeah, you can, you can just tell us why. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult question. Um, I, think since, since, um, I think since the year I graduated from high school, 99, 2000, I told myself every year I want to go to a new country. I must visit a new country every year. And luckily since then, I've been able to do that, whether it be through work or whether it be through, you know, just myself on vacation. Uh, so traveling is definitely a thing that I, I, I love. I love doing and, and seeing the world, uh, you know, and I think, Traveling also makes me appreciate South Africa a lot more. So uh, through my travels, I've actually gotten to love South Africa. I actually don't, you know, people say, oh, could you go live? No, I want to live in South Africa because I love this country. But going outside and seeing the world makes you love what's going on there, but even appreciate this country even more. Uh, but in terms of the best countries um, I've been to, geez, um, the problem is also, uh, I've lived in some countries and some countries I've visited. So it's also a different perspective because living in a country, you get to know more about it. Uh, so I'll, I'll maybe separate them in that regard. In terms of the best country I've lived in, I definitely would say Italy. Italy is definitely um, on, on one of the top countries for me in terms of 
um, countries that I've lived in because of, of, of just like I said before, the, the, the culture, the passion, the, the, the things, I mean, I'm, I mean, all the things that they love in Italy, I love as well, you know? So for me, when I was there, I was like, okay, I was meant to be here because it was just, you know, perfect. I mean, um, when I was in high school, uh, my favorite player was Gabriel Battistuta. That's who I modeled my game around. Mm. And he was playing in Florence. And I would go every weekend that I could. I would go take a train to Florence just to go watch him play, you know. And the fans there, you know, from 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 Fiorentina just took me in like one of their own. They're like a South African guy, you know, here and watching our games coming. You know, it was it was it was just the culture, the football, everything was about that country was just romantic in a way, you know. So I definitely Italy's on top there for me. And then in in terms of the countries that I've kind of not lived in and I've visited, um, definitely I think on the African continent, um, you know, East Africa definitely has something that I like, you know, Uganda, Kenya, uh, I haven't been to Tanzania yet, but those two countries definitely, um, I definitely love the vibe um, in East Africa and the people, um, and they also love their football. You know, I think I'm connected to people who love their football. So I think uh, Argentina is next on my list because uh, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Diego Maradona fan, and I'm still mourning and crying and um so argentina is definitely and the next destination i need to go uh, before i let you go um as a fellow arsenal supporter i have to ask why arsenal funny story um so arsenal came to south africa in 93 um they came to play chiefs i think man united and arsenal came in 93 around that time um, and that's the first time I got to kind of know about Arsenal. So then I, I found out there was this player, Ian Wright, and then he had a rap song at the time called Do the Right Thing. Yeah. And for me, this was magic. I'm like, an Arsenal player, and he's also rapping, and I was just like in love. So that's how I fell in love with Arsenal, actually, is because of Ian Wright, um, Ian Wright and his rapping, uh, and that song, Do the Right Thing. So funny enough, a friend of mine who works in the industry, he's managing Ian Wright right now. So I was talking to him and he was telling me, yeah, Austin, what are you doing? He's like, no, I'm managing Ian Wright. So I said, geez, dude, you don't understand. Ian Wright, and I told him this story. Five minutes later, he sends me a voice note from Ian Wright saying, uh, hey, KB, how are you doing? I was in shock. I was just like, wow, ah. you know. So, so yeah, I think that's that was my... My first love affair with Arsenal um, is when they came to the country and kind of introduced me to Ian Wright. And then, yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, that's insane. Um, well, Cabello, thanks for joining me on this key discussions. Uh, your story is just inspiring and I really enjoyed t- chatting to you. Um, I wish you all the best and look forward to hearing from you in the near future. No, thank you very much, my brother. And thanks for all the work that you do because... Um, you know, I've also been watching uh, a lot of the work that you're doing and, you know, it's it's great having uh, young up-and-coming guys like yourself in the industry who are contributing positively and, and having a positive impact on the game. So uh, thank you very much. Keep doing what you're doing and hope you grow to bigger and better things. Oh, thanks, Gabby. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, t- take care and stay safe. 
Thank you. Cheers. Next week's episode will be joined by David Ribeiro, a football coach, sports scientist, model, and entrepreneur who is currently part of the FIFA Master Program. If you have any questions or things you'd like us to discuss on this key discussions, please hit me up at AB underscore Basson on Twitter or on Instagram. Stay safe, subscribe, aware.